Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, if we don't know each other, one of the pastors on the team here, I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 52. If you're regular with us, um, you need to know we have been preaching through the book of Romans. We've hit pause during this Advent season, and we're digging into the book of Isaiah. Specifically, what does Isaiah, this prophet who lived 700 years before the coming of Christ, what does Isaiah have to tell us about the incarnation? You know, during this Advent Christmas season, um, we're, we've heard them many, many times before. The religious slogans and phrases we're all familiar with, right? Jesus is the reason for the season. Wise men still seek him. I kind of like that one, actually. It's the most wonderful time of the year, or my personal favorite from Charlie Brown. Doesn't anyone know what Christmas is all about, right? Now, as true as all of those are, and as uh, much as they touch on something that's important, in and of themselves, they aren't particularly helpful, right? In and of themselves, there's not a spiritual depth and knowledge that saves. There's not a spiritual depth and knowledge that transforms, that leads us to a place that we really understand who Jesus is and what he has done and what we are celebrating. And let, let me give you an example. You need to know, we obviously all know, particularly this time of year, there are folks living in our community who are vested in helping us, making our city safe, helping us in times of need, whether it's the police, the firemen, the EMTs, um, God bless them for the work they do. And as important as it is to know that they're there, unless you know how to contact them when you need them, unless you know where to find them when the need arises, just the general knowledge that they're there won't do you any good. Now, it's the same thing with Advent and Jesus. You can, just having a general, distant, sort of generic knowledge of who Jesus is won't do you any good. Saving faith, transforming faith, comes through knowing who Jesus truly is, what he's done. And amazingly, the book of Isaiah gives us this. Now, you heard me say this last week. Isaiah, next to the Psalms, is the most quoted book in the entire New Testament. In fact, Isaiah is the most quoted prophet. And as we've seen in our study thus far, Isaiah is first calling the people of God to prepare themselves, to prepare themselves for the coming of the Lord, that the Lord is coming to establish justice and peace and righteousness, and he's going to raise up a child who is going to grow to be wonderful counselor, prince of peace, mighty God. The governments of the worlds are going to rest upon his shoulders. And as we saw last week, this child, Isaiah tells us, is going to come from the line of David. He's going to be a king from the root of Jesse. The problem is the root is no longer a root. It's just a stump. And God, what God does, he supernaturally brings up out of no life this life which is now called to deliver us as his people. And this delivers us, of course, to Isaiah 52 and 53. Guys, I don't want to overstate this, but Isaiah 52 and 53 are undoubtedly two of the most important chapters in all of the Bible. They are, in fact, the pinnacle, the supreme revelation of who the Messiah is, either in the Old Testament or the New Testament. In fact, and I'm quoting John MacArthur here, even without the New Testament, MacArthur says, There is enough gospel in Isaiah chapter 53 to save a world of sinners. 
even if we did not have the New Testament, Isaiah 53 gives us one of the richest, deepest, most penetrating looks at who the Savior truly is and the way that he came to save the world. Now, the way that he came to save the world comes as a shock. It came as a shock to those people who were living 700 years ago, and it still comes as a shock to us today. And so that's where we're going. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to begin reading in Isaiah 52, beginning at the end of 52, verse 13 through 53. Now hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Let's pray. Father, there's a lot swirling in our lives and hearts and minds during this season. But Father, we acknowledge that the greatest truths ever penned by your prophet, inspired by you, are contained here in these two chapters. And so we ask, Lord, that you, by the power of your spirit, would help us to rearrange the furniture of our hearts. And that we would be able to wrap our hearts and minds around just who this suffering servant, Savior Messiah is. 
And so, Father, we ask that you would do this by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may take your seats. All right. There are three things that I want to draw your attention to in this passage about the servant. Okay. And here they are. Number one, the servant we're going to find is a savior. Number two, the servant is a sufferer. And finally, we're going to see that the servant is a substitute. So let's start with this idea that the servant is a savior. Um, This is the fourth passage um, of, of what we commonly call the four servant songs of Isaiah. The others are in Isaiah 42 and 49 and 50. And it's helpful for us to understand what Isaiah means by this word servant. But when when Isaiah uses the word servant, what he's talking about as this person whom he is discussing is God's chosen instrument. This is God's chosen uh, person who will usher in justice and peace and righteousness, who will bring healing to the people of God, who will restore them in relationship to him. And Isaiah draws our attention to the servant, firstly, in verse 13. And I'll understand something about the, the context here, it is the Lord who is speaking first. So it's the Lord who first introduces the servant. Then it is Isaiah who comments on the servant. And then finally, it's God again who sort of wraps this up and gives this pronouncement about the servant. And the first thing that God says here is behold. Literally, it means look here. Hey, 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 Four Oaks, you've been busy this season. You've been going 90 to nothing, buying presents, doing your thing, getting ready to entertain family, all that stuff. I know there's a lot to distract you, but, but let me tell you something. Focus your attention here. That's what the word literally means. Fix your attention on him because the servant, Isaiah, says is to be high and lifted up. In verse 15, it tells us that the servant will sprinkle, and the word literally means to startle, okay? That the servant will startle the nations. That in his presence, the most powerful kings of the world will have their mouths closed. They won't have anything to say. In other words, this servant Messiah answers to no one. This servant Messiah takes a knee to no man, to no woman, to no country, to no political party, to no institution. This man, this servant is God's chosen anointed servant come to do his will. And so look at him. Draw your attention in. Behold him. Lift him up. Now, an interesting phrase in verse 1 of chapter 53, look there. It says that the arm of the Lord has been revealed through the servant. Now, whenever we see the phrase, the arm of the Lord in Scripture, it always denotes God's deliverance, right? It always communicates this idea that God is mighty and that he is so mighty that he, in fact, can rescue and save as only he can. And so what Isaiah, I think, essentially is telling us here in these opening verses is that the servant is in every way God's, the way of God's ordained means of salvation. Now, there's a question that's being pressed forward through the book of Isaiah if you're paying attention. And and, and the question is simply this. How can sinful Israel, 
who was once exiled Israel, how can they again be made servant Israel? And you've heard me say this before, and John Piper says this, that the king is coming is not in question. That, that he is mighty to save is not in question. The question is, is that good news or bad news for you? Will, will he save you? It, will the coming of the king be good news for you? And Isaiah is, is pressing us to, to, to examine even our own hearts. By what means will God lead us to be reconciled to him? How, how are we people, sinful, rebellious, broken people, who were not his people, how are we now to be made his people? And what we're going to see here is that it is through the servant of God that you and I will be made servants of God, his possession. Now, we've kind of been beating around the bush a little bit. We say, well, who is this servant? What is his identity? Now, this is important to understand because higher critical theory wants to say, well, well, Isaiah, there is no way Isaiah could have known about the coming Messiah 700 years prior to this. So, so clearly Isaiah is talking about himself or Isaiah is talking about some kind of contemporary. And let me just say that when we, when, when, when we listen to that sort of critique, we're putting ourselves not only at odds with the scripture writers, the apostles, we're putting ourselves at odds with Jesus himself. Now, I want to give you just a couple of samplings of times in the New Testament where the scripture writers directly quote Isaiah 53 and apply this to Christ. Okay, so Matthew chapter 8. So Matthew's our first witness. It says, That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So Matthew gives testimony. Now here, Jesus is speaking in Luke 22, and here's what he says. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. So there is Jesus himself. And and finally, listen to what Peter says. Peter, at the end of his life, he has spent... Um, three years with Jesus, he has heard Jesus preach and teach and seen him do all of his miracles, crucified on the cross, risen from the grave. And it's here at the end of his life, as Peter undoubtedly has been pouring over the book of Isaiah, in fact, Isaiah 53, that he comes to this realization. Listen to this. For to this you have been called... Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. To righteousness. By his wounds, Peter says, you have been healed. You think Peter spent a little bit of time in Isaiah 53? I think so. Which sheds all kind of light in this last passage, last one I'll read here from, from the New Testament, Acts chapter 8. And, and, here, and here's the setting. It says, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship 
and was returning seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet, guess what, right? Isaiah. Now, understand something. The Ethiopian was probably what we refer to as a God-fearer. He was clearly a Gentile. He wasn't raised as a, as a Jew, but through his travels through the, the courts of Ethiopia and, and, and Israel exchanging pleasantries and those sorts of things, he had become acquainted. He had heard about the God of Israel, and he was a worshiper, but he knew very little. He had lots of zeal, okay, but little knowledge. And I want you to see how Philip interfaces with him. Look at verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, like most of us would say, of course we do. No, what does he say? How can I, unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself, higher critical theory, or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, He told him the good news about Jesus. Guys, it's unequivocal. It could not be clearer. 700 years before the coming of Christ, the prophet Isaiah speaks with authority. He speaks with power. He speaks with foretelling. He says, there is coming a servant who is a savior. You know, there are many things in this life in which we are unclear and will go to our graves being unclear about. There are even some things in the scriptures that we are unclear about. Now, the problem is not the scriptures, of course. The problem is us. But there's many things that we lack clarity upon. But church, let me tell you this. There is one thing above all others. There is one thing this Advent season which needs to be pressed upon you, your children, your family, your friends, your neighbors, something that we can all have absolute clarity about, and it's simply this. Jesus is the Savior of the world. There is no other name under heaven or earth by which men will be saved. He is the servant Savior, which again presses forward the question, well then how does the servant become our Savior? This is where we get into the meat of the passage, point two. The servant is a sufferer. Now, strangely, and I think it's it's kind of strange, Isaiah seems to draw our attention to the physical appearance of the Savior. Specifically, not only what he looks like, but how others respond when they see him. Okay, so let's, let's, let's look at verses 14 and 15 in chapter 52. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Verses 2 and 3 of chapter 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, his appearance is so grotesque that we have to hide our eyes from it. 
It's like you students who walk into your bathroom first thing in the morning and you see your reflection in the mirror and you scream and run the other direction, right? Now, some here see a description of Jesus's physical appearance, okay? Literal physical appearance, that he was deformed, unpleasant to look at, ugly. Um, Now, if if that's true, then the Chosen uh, video series has gotten this completely wrong, right? They need to recast Jesus. Now, we, we don't know what Jesus looked like Although, if you were a child of the 80s like me, he was clearly an airbrushed Jesus with a long, flowing mullet in the Michael W. Smith video. It's interesting how that happened. I don't think Isaiah is meaning to paint a literal, physical portrait for us. Okay, now stay with me here for a second. What he's doing is pointing out the fact that once people discover who this Savior servant is, Once they find out who he is and how he operates and what he does and how he accomplishes his mission, they are utterly shocked. They are dumbfounded. You see, because what we're given here is a picture of a servant savior who is humble, who is destitute, who is non-powerful in the human sense. He's a non-attention-seeking behavior. He came to be served, Mark tells us, not to be served, but give his life as a ransom for many. And do we not see this through the entirety of Jesus' ministry? And in fact, we celebrate these very humble origins here during Advent, and for good reason. He's a baby born in a manger. He comes from a disgraced beginning where his mom was an unwed mother. Here we have the Savior of the world running for his life at an early age, fleeing to Egypt to escape the clutches of Herod the Great. He grows up in obscurity in Nazareth. Does anything good come from Nazareth? The disciples ask us and proclaim to us. It tells us that he has no place to lay his head. Let's be honest, this is not savior kind of behavior, is it? This is not savior kind of behavior. See, when, when, when people see who the Messiah is, this is Isaiah's point, they're shocked. They're offended. They're, they're, they're in disbelief. They're, they're, they're embarrassed, right? I mean, think about the Wizard of Oz, the great and powerful Oz, and as Dorothy and her entourage approached the quote-unquote throne room and the peals of lightning and the flashes and his face on the screen and they are terrified, all it takes is one little what? Dog named Toto. I hope you haven't named your dog Toto, but if you have, God forgive you. But that one little dog Toto who comes and nudges his hurt nose behind the curtain and what you realize as the great and powerful Oz is just a little man harmless behind the curtain. What was their response? (laughs) Scorn, shock, disbelief. You're a fraud. Because think for a second about who our cultural saviors are. Who are the people that we culturally gravitate to? Is it not political figures who can alter the landscape? CEOs who transform the technological markets, athletes who transcend sports, religious leaders that dispense new truths and novelty ideas. But one of the greatest stumbling blocks to embracing the gospel 
is the realization that we have to embrace a suffering Savior. Just listen to the words Isaiah uses in this passage. And they're, they're powerful because they are so humiliating. This Savior, Isaiah tells us, was stricken. He was smitten. He was crushed. He was bruised. He was pierced. He was despised. This is not what messiahs do. You know, those of you who know me know I'm a college football junkie. And many of you who are college football junkies, you know very well what the most important day of the year is in college football, right? It's what we just celebrated, National Signing Day, right? You can't win. You can't, it doesn't matter how good you are in the X's and O's if you don't have the Jimmy's and Joe's. You've got to have the right kind of players to win. This past Wednesday saw something that none of us had ever seen before. FSU, sorry to to evoke PTSD, but FSU had a commitment from the consensus number one recruit in the country, number one recruit. He had been committed to FSU for two years. He had given countless interviews, and FSU was his dream school, and he's always wanted to come here, and he always wanted to be here. But on the national signing day, he in turn did not sign with FSU. Now, he didn't sign with the Blasted Gators, thankfully, right? He, he didn't sign with another one of the college football powerhouses like Alabama or Georgia or Oklahoma. That, that would have been bad enough. But instead, the number one recruit in the country did what? He signed with a little school named Jackson State. It's a, it's a, it's a city, it's a, it's a school that's in a place right down the road from where Susan and I used to live when I was in seminary. It's an FCS school, Jackson, Mississippi. And what was the universal reaction? Shock. This just doesn't happen. Nobody just does this. Now, rumor has it that there was two million reasons why he did that, okay? But, but you get what I'm saying. People were confounded. They were flabbergasted. It's like, what is going on here? That's what Isaiah is trying to impress upon us about the Savior, The nature of the Savior's mission, it is that through death and suffering and loss is the way that you and I have life, is the way that you and I have salvation. And understand, the world had never heard of such a thing. In fact, the the, the Greeks said, that is absolute foolishness, Paul. The Jews said, it's in fact a scandal. And the question we want to answer in this very last point is why did the Savior servant have to be the suffering servant? That's the question. That's the heart of this text. And the reason is, our third point, he had to be a substitute servant. Because when we say that Jesus was a substitute or is a substitute for us, please understand kind of the import of what we're saying here. What we're saying is that Jesus' death had a very specific purpose. That Jesus' death on a cross had a very specific function in relation to us as the people of God. Now let's look back again at the text, and I want you to see the thread of substitution that runs through this text from start to finish. Now listen, so just a few verses, okay? Surely he has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He is pierced for our transgressions. He is crushed for our iniquities. In other words, Jesus did not just suffer generically. 
Jesus did not just experience loss or suffering of a general kind. His suffering was relational to its core. See, he suffered in our place. He bore our sins. He took part in exchange. He got our sins. We got his righteousness. He received death so that we might receive life. And what I'm describing here, the substitutionary atonement of Christ, it has been at the heart. It has been at the heart of Christian teaching, the heart of Christian theology for over 2,000 years. Now, the reason I'm wanting to put just a finer point on this just for a second is that in some quarters of evangelicalism, particularly liberal progressive quarters, there, there, there is a move to distance ourselves or distance the church from this idea of a substitute savior. So what things that you might hear in those quarters is that, well, you know, Jesus died as an example to us. And he died in order to, to, so we can learn how to, how to suffer ourselves. Just as Jesus turned the other cheek, we need to turn the other cheek. And by the way, that's true. That's true. You might even hear, heard, hear it say, Jesus died in order to triumph over evil, to, to come back to life, to be raised to life, to be shown that he is greater than sin. And again, what we want to say is, that's true. It's all true. However, it's very quick to explain away the idea of substitution as a sacrifice for sins. That's barbaric. That's, that's a relic of a pagan ritual past. We, we are much more sophisticated. Um, we do not operate in those sort of primitive terms. Jesus, yes, death as an example, but Jesus as a b- bloody sacrifice offered up by God for our sins? No way. Here's a quote. It's just a good example, a a sampling of this kind of teaching. It says, Jesus was put to death by the structures of political, economic, and religious power represented by Pontius Pilate, Herod, Antipas, and Joseph Caiaphas. True. That's true. In the gospel narratives, we see the Roman governor, the king of Judea, and the high priest acting in demonic concert to execute Jesus. Also true. But here's the kicker. God did not kill Jesus. Human culture and civilization did. God did not demand the death of Jesus. We did. It is so, so important, church, that we all be students of our Bible. That your knowledge of the scriptures not be merely a mediated knowledge. Now, as important as teachers and pastors are and elders in the right context, there can be no substitute for your personal study of the word of God. And so when you hear something like that, which, let's be honest, bends itself to the spirit of the age. It does. It appeals to modern sensibilities to say something like this. But it's not what Isaiah says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. The Lord laid upon him the iniquity of us all. A couple of passages from the New Testament. Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. God cursed his own son. 
Acts 2.23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So yes, lawless men killed Jesus, but according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And finally, we've been preaching through Romans, and we see this as clear as can be. There, there's not a, a clear statement about the substitutionary atonement death of Jesus than Romans 3. Now listen to this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now listen. Whom God put forward, literally offered up, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I'm going to say something really strongly, but I I think it's true. I think it's backed up by this text. Guys, it is possible to affirm the first two characteristics of the Savior, of the servant. That the servant is a Savior, that the servant suffers. It's very possible to embrace those two things, yet miss the gospel entirely. See, Jesus was indeed put forward by the Father. Jesus was indeed put forth to die as a sacrifice, as an atonement, shall we say this, as a substitution And we have to say, well, Pastor Paul, why why is there so much kind of blowback on this idea of substitution? Why is it so resisted? Why is it so set aside and denied? And I think there's an issue that's lurking even deeper among the surface there, right? See, to embrace substitution means admitting something about ourselves. See, embracing substitution means we have to acknowledge I, that, that, that God is a righteous, holy God and that his wrath is justly, fairly poured out on all unrighteousness. And that in order for God's wrath to be satisfied, there has to be a perfect substitute. You see, God's wrath is that one attribute in every culture, in every time, in every era has certain Christian truths that it is more allergic to than others. And for us, it is undoubtedly the wrath of God. We can't tolerate it. But church, please understand this. You can't have the gospel without the wrath of God and the suffering servant who died in your place. That's what makes Isaiah 53 good news. See, if if it's if we're just kind of sick, we're kind of like rough around the edges, and then God came to help us become a better person and to do better things and to live more fulfilling lives, then, and you've heard me say this before, we're not looking for a savior. We might be looking for a therapist, we might be looking for a helpmate, we might be looking for a lot of things, but we're, what we're not finding at that point is a savior who delivers us from our sins. This is the picture of the servant that Isaiah 53 gives us. One of the things that we lose when we lose substitution is we lose the beautiful picture of Jesus. Because the, the, Isaiah 53, it is just, it's a majestic passage. 
You've, told, you've heard me say this, I said it a couple weeks ago. Use this Advent season to work your way through the book of Isaiah. It is a magnificent book. It's magisterial. It is, the, it is to the Old Testament what Romans is to the New Testament. And as you do, your esteem and praise and glory for Christ will expand. When you see in all its fullness who Jesus is and what he has done for those who could not do for themselves, we give glory to God and to his saving servant. Jesus came as your savior, church. He came as your sufferer. He came as your substitute. That's what Advent is really all about. You know, each Sunday we've been lighting one of the Advent candles, and one is dying a slow, painful death right here, as I see. It's, 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 it's going to make it, but only for a few more minutes. We don't do this just for religious observance, or, you know, this, this serves a, a liturgical, traditional, ceremonial um, sort of thing. Because we do it because it's been a practice of the church. Right? You've heard, you know, tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. This is a, this is a tradition of the church. And the Advent candle means something different each Advent Sunday. This Sunday we celebrate peace. And one of the common refrains during Advent season is peace on earth, goodwill towards men. But I pray that we can see that in Isaiah 53, before there can be peace on earth, before there can be peace in your marriage, before there can be peace in your relationships, before there can be peace politically, there has to be a fundamental peace that's accomplished in your heart through Jesus Christ. Let's pray.